The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. It's good to be here. Um, if you're new to us um, and you saw us at Christmas on the River, it's good to have you. That was a blast. We've done that the past two years as a church, and we've come together and served the Parkville community in that way. So if you're new and you haven't been to Emmaus before, welcome. It is our privilege to have you with us. My name is Colton. I'm not one of the pastors here at Emmaus. I'm one of the pastors in training. And that is a fancy way of saying that I want to be a pastor and I'm training under the pastor. So we've got a whole lot of work to do today. We only have two verses which is weird for Emmaus, right? Usually we're walking through like half of a book in one sermon. But today we have two verses. And the two verses that we have are Philippians 4, 8, and 9. So if you have a Bible, open to Philippians 4. And what we're going to see today is what we see every Sunday, right? We're going to see the gospel, right? If you're not familiar with us, that's what we give every week, week in and week out, as we point people to the cross of Christ. Because all of Scripture proclaims it, right? All of Scripture points to the grandeur and the goodness of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so we don't have some secret message. We don't have some, you don't have to be like a Marine Corps level member of Emmaus Church to be able to figure out what we're about. And that's the gospel. That's that we believe that Jesus Christ in His life, death, and resurrection perfectly satisfied the wrath of God for the church. And so what I want to do today is I want to read this text, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through the entire book of Philippians, right? We're going to do the whole book today. It's going to be awesome, except for everything after nine. But we're going to walk through the first four chapters. We're going to walk through, and we're going to see at a 50,000-foot level what's going on in chapter one. Then we're going to see what's going on in chapter two. We're going to see what's going on in chapter three. Then we're going to land in our context in chapter four, and we're going to see how all of this fits together. And how Paul isn't trying to make a new statement, a new claim when it comes to our text today, but how he is just finalizing and coming to the conclusion of his argument for this book. So, if you have your Bibles, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Father, your word does not return void. You are gracious to us beyond measure that you speak to us through your word. Outside of your loving kindness, we have nothing. We hold nothing. We thank you for sending your son to actually complete the salvation of your people. You did not send him to complete an undefinable, ambiguous work, but you had a specific people in mind, your church. 
And with bent soul and closed eye, we come humbly before your throne to say thank you. Father, give us the Spirit to embolden us that we might stand firm on your truth amidst a culture that so adamantly denies your gospel. It is an undeserved privilege for us to come to you as a father. So, Father, continue to be with us as we journey through the rest of this book together. Sharpen our minds, soften our hearts, and bring those who do not know the joy of your gospel, bring them to faith and repentance. It is in the blessed name, in the treasured name of Jesus, your Son, that we pray. Amen. Okay. So we've been in Philippians for what is like 11 weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks. And so we've seen a whole lot go on, right? And it would be... um, unsatisfactory for us to come to this text, this two-verse text, and see what is going on without the context of the entire book. And Glenn isn't here, but gave a sermon two weeks ago, knocked it out of the park. It was unbelievably good. So go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. But he gave a definition for the purpose of the book of, uh, for the book of Philippians. And he says this, The purpose of the book of Philippians is to encourage the Philippian partners in their terrifying, though joyous campaign, to advance the gospel by focusing on a selfless mindset that produces unity. So this is the definition he gave. But it's not the only thing that's going on in the book, right? So if you give a one-sentence definition of the book of Philippians, it should be that. But there's other things going on. There's other themes. There's themes like joy, and there's themes like peace, and there's themes like, what, what do I got here? There's themes like suffering and unity. All of these things are aspects of this argument that Paul is making as it relates to partnering together for the gospel. Does that make sense? And so what we need to do is we're going to put our text today in that context because it's so easy to take two verses and to just look at them and scrutinize them and miss what's going on in the rest of the book. So here we go. If you have a Bible, turn it one page to the left, I guess, and, um, because we're going to be in chapter 1 for a moment. So chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what we see in chapter 1 is this theme of partnering together in the gospel as a community, as a church, right? He's writing to the church at Philippi, partnering together to advance his gospel. This is the major theme of the book, right? If we don't have our graphic up, but our graphic, partnership in the gospel, that is what's going on in the book of Philippians. And Paul and God is using Paul's imprisonment both not only to reach the empirical guard, but to reassure those in Philippi that the gospel is going forth. This is some of the things that we see in chapter 1. And then the chapter is going to move from that to um, Paul seeing his own spiritual victory come to fruition, right? So we have that theme verse in 3 through 5, and then in 27, or in the, the verses before the section on 27, we see Paul talking about his own spiritual victory, his own deliverance, right? It says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about spiritual victory here. And so we get this theme that Paul is pleading with them, your prayers, they're going to work for my spiritual deliverance. And so these are the things that we're seeing in the first chapter. These all relate back to how he's exhorting the people at Philippi to continue to partner in the gospel. And then in 27... In 28, we have this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm 
standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, right? And so this is that text, right? What does he say? Side by side, one another. We're doing this thing together, right? It's not in isolation. We've seen that all throughout the book. We are together as a church in Parkville, Missouri to reach Parkville, Missouri, to reach Kansas City, to reach Missouri, to reach the U.S., to reach the ends of the earth, right? We're not alone in this endeavor, We're linked arm in arm. We're in a campaign together to reach people with the gospel. This is a text that shows the unity in the church to continue to proclaim the gospel together, even though the endeavor at some times will be frightening. But because of Christ, we are not to be frightened because God is the orchestrator of our entire salvation, even though that might mean suffering and persecution in the present. So that's what we see. Those are the broad themes that we see in the first chapter, suffering. We see that in the later, later part of verses 29. And we see joy, and we see hope, and we see encouragement. So 20, uh, move to chapter 2 now. We're going to be encouraged. This is chapter 2. We're going to be encouraged by Christ's example, right? So this is what it says in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one Mind. This is again that unity language. Then in verse 4, we see that we also are to put the needs of others before ourselves. We're supposed to think less of ourselves than we are for others. We're supposed to be unified in how we give up ourselves for one another, like Christ gave himself up for us, as we see in 5 through 11 of chapter 2. Then in 12 through 18 of chapter 2, we get a hearkening back to chapter 1 to remember to work out our own spiritual victory like Paul worked his out, right? So we're just walking through the book. His own, the, the, he's encouraging the Philippians to work out their own spiritual victory like he worked his out, right? And so then in 17 and 18, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, a libation, right, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. That faith right there is their faithfulness to continue to partner in the gospel, so this is what's happening. We see this theme. It's just going over and over. We can go place and place and time and time again in the book to show that this is what Paul is getting at. He's weaving it throughout the entire book. And then we get chapter 3. In chapter 3, we get this beautiful picture, right? Paul just has the gospel flowing out of him in chapter 3, right? So he's going to um, show how Glenn demonstrated this wonderfully. He's going to call the Jews dogs because that's what the Jews called the Gentiles, right? He's going to say, and oh, look at this. He's going to say this. He's going to say, watch out for dogs, right? Say, look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, right? So he's going to bring up this language that's kind of weird to show that these people who've been living this faith that is saying that you can earn your salvation by your work, by the mutilation of the flesh, look out for them. Look out for them because they do not embody the true gospel. And then he goes to unpack and say, even if anybody had the right to boast, because the Jews, they were boasting in their, in their works. So if anybody had the right to boast, right? He gives his resume. He says, look, if anybody had the right to boast, it's me. But I count it all as loss. Right? He calls it rubbish. He calls it dirty diapers and menstrual rags. Rubbish. My works is a negative quality. It's not even in the black at all. It's not a zero. It's a negative one or a negative two or worse. He counts it all as loss. Chapter 3 demonstrate, Paul demonstrates the gospel beautifully, right? Paul counts his work as less than nothing because of the surpassing worth of Christ. Then we see this. So this is the last part of chapter 3. And then we're getting to our text, right? We're getting there. I promise. 
This is 17, starting in 17. And we see Paul wanting to share in the gospel with Christ. So we get this discussion and this conversation about what the gospel is in 3, 1 through 11, then in, or 3, 1 through 16. Then in 17, we see what Paul wants to share in the gospel with. He says sharing in Christ's suffering, sharing in Christ's death, sharing in Christ's resurrection. And then he appeals to the Philippians to make Christ their own as Christ has made them his own. We get this demonstration of the gospel of Christ laying himself down for the sake of sinners. Sinners being brought from darkness into light, from death into life. This is what we see in chapter 3. Paul is outlining this. And he says this in 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Right? This is what we see. We go forward with the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel in our lives, and we move towards our ultimate eternal joy in the gospel. Thus, moving forward in the gospel means we must look to Christian leaders, right? Ronnie talked about this. We see in Hebrews, right, the, the whole cloud of witnesses in heaven, right? We're not to have, they're not looking down at us. We're looking towards them so that we might be built up and so that we might be encouraged to continue to partner in the gospel. We might be, continue to persevere and strive for the goal. We look towards our end in the gospel. And then we come to Hedger's passage last week, which is really the first. It's the beginning of this sermon, right? Hedger broke it into two weeks, but it's really the beginning of this sermon because what we see is a beginning of exhortations, right? In light of all of that, in light of all of the gospel truth that we've seen throughout the book, in light of everything we've seen in chapter 3, we get these exhortations, right? If chapter 3 is the gospel in its indicatives, this is what the gospel is. This is Christ and him crucified. This is Christ and him resurrected. This is what the gospel is. Chapter 4 is this is the, then this is what you do. Go ye therefore, right? So if three is the indicative, four is the imperative. So here we go. Paul in one through seven is writing to show how the Philippians, how they should practice all of these things that they've learned, right? It says, euodia and syntyche, those two really hard words to, to pronounce. Agree in the Lord, that's unity, Help these fellow laborers in the gospel. That's unity. That's this theme that we've seen throughout the whole book. It says, be reasonable. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's joy. That's one of those themes that we see throughout the entire book. Do not be anxious. Be a prayerful people, making all things known to the Lord with thanksgiving. In light of all of this, through these things, verse 7 tells us, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then, our text for today. So we've seen all of that. So we've seen the, big, the bigger themes, right? And that was by no means comprehensive of what we've seen so far in this book. But we've seen some of the bigger themes of the book of Philippians, right? And we get our text today. And we get an exhortation, an additional exhortation, Right? Not only this, but we get an exhortation on how the Philippian believers should live. They should live in accordance with the instruction he is giving them. Right? It's a truth that harkens back to 4.1, which is stand firm. Right? 4.1 says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We're to stand firm. So this is one of the ways that we stand firm. So here we go. Verse 8. If you've got your Bibles, we're getting into our text. We're going to be jumping back and pointing to some of these passages that we just saw. 
Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, that's included in here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. All right. So we come to our text today, right? We come to our text today with the charge to hold our thoughts and take them captive with the gospel. Now, let me, let me put the brakes on here right quick. Because this word, this word in Greek that we translated think, right? Think about these things. It has a pretty wide range of meaning. And what it can mean is it can mean to take into account. It can mean to consider. It can mean to understand. It can mean to think. And so when I say think about these things, it's not something that's absent from our practice, Right? So we're to think about these things, but it's not supposed to be absent from our practice. So, here's what's going on in this text, because it's a lot, right? We have two, okay, this is going to get kind of technical, but, but we're a smart church, so we can do this. There's two things going on. We have two rhetorical devices coming to fruition in this. We have six whatevers, and we have two if-anythings, Okay? And so these two, if anything, right, if anything's morally excellent and if anything is worthy of praise, we have those two things. If the anything fits that category, it's going to follow through in that list of the six whatevers. Does that make sense? Okay, so we've got these six whatevers. And so trying to, I don't know how to, six and two, I don't have enough fingers, I don't think, okay. Um, all right, so the six whatevers. Let's talk about them for a second, because often it's going to be simple to want to take these six whatevers and for me to spend half of my time talking about truth and the other halves of my time talking about honor and justice and purity and loveliness and commendability, but these should be seen as a unit, right? So whatever is true is not false, right? It is true thought, true disposition, true deed. And honor is not the base, it's serious, it's sublime, it's dignified, it's august, it's majestic, just is the right, not the wrong. Pure is the moral, or is the immoral, and lovely is not the disgusting, right? Commendability and admirability is not the despicable, right? These are all things that are getting at the same thing. And so it's these six items in a unit that are getting at the same thing. So think about this, right? Think about it, right? Think about these things. These things ought not to be nitpicked and examined scrupulously, individualized from one another, but rather as a unit. Because what's going on here is Paul's hearkening back to the person of Jesus and saying, look, these things, these six things are all coming to fruition in Christ. So he's saying, whatever is true, think about that thing, consider that thing, take that thing into account. He's saying, that is Jesus, right? So Jesus is the one who bears truth. Jesus is the one who's chiefly honorable. Jesus is the one who brings justice, right? So we were distant from God, and there was a price for our sin, and we were made right with God because of Christ. Christ is the one who is just. He is the one who never had a pure thought. He's the one who never had an impure thought or an impure deed, right? He's the one who is perfect in his life, pure. He's the only one who's lovely, the work on the cross that saves sinners, that beautiful work, right? He is lovely. He is the one who is commendable. So when we say to think about these things, chiefly we're supposed to set our mind on the things of the gospel, but we're also supposed to set our mind on the things that are the imperatives, if you will, of the gospel, the things that we're called to do, the things that the book is telling us, that the entire book of Philippians is telling us to do, right? So he's saying, look, since these things are found ultimately in Christ, when we think about gospel partnership and gospel unity and having joy in the gospel, we are talking about these six things. So when we say we need to be a church that partners in the gospel, these six things, right, we're not like throwing these six things up here as a litmus test and saying, okay, 
Does joy fit truth? Can I have joy in something that's not true? Okay, well, then I can't think about that. That's not, that's not what's going on. What he's saying is we need to think about these together and see that how in Christ all of these things come to fruition, and so we should set our minds to them. Christ fulfills all these things, and so we think about having joy in the gospel. So we think about what grace is, and we think about what it means to be united as a church. We should take into account these things of Christ. D.A. Carson says this, One of the sovereign remedies against sin is to spend much time, thoughtful time, meditative time in the Scriptures, for it is impossible to get rid of the trash in our minds without replacing it with an entirely different way of thinking. And so hear me. I'm not saying that this text is 100% about how we should think harder as Christians, and we should, because it also has to do with our feet, right? We should think harder as Christians, but this also has to do with how we act and how we live out what we'll see in chapter 9. But this is a battle. This isn't anything less than us submitting our consciences to the gospel, right? That is not excluded in this. And so we need to realize that there is a, a war front in our minds for the gospel. How we think affects how we act. It's not simply that we think well, though, either. Right? This is kind of a complicated text because it's not just simply that we have a functioning head knowledge of Scripture Because without it ever taking hold of our heart, how can we ever actually be thinking about the thing? Well, it's not a mechanical, joyless endeavor, right? We can memorize Scripture and not have Jesus as Lord. You realize that. You realize that. And so when we say think about these things, ponder on these things, set your soul in its entirety on these things, So it's not just Bible memorization and it's not just like thinking hard for like 10 minutes. It's setting your entire person, your entire being onto the gospel so that when you wake up in the morning, so when you go to bed at night, and so when you're at the dinner table, what's on the brim, what your mind, your inner conscience is flowing out with is the gospel, is the deepness, is the the wonderful depth of the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what Carson goes on to say. To hide God's word in our hearts as opposed to our computers means that, yes, we ought to memorize it, read it, and reread it, and think about it, and turn it over in our minds. Only such a committed absorption of what God says will enable us to turn and confront change, the unbiblical worldviews all around us. We must, we must not only know our Bible, but actually love the author of our Bible. How shallow, how shallow would it be for us to have scripture in our hearts but not have his king on or have the king of scripture on the throne of our hearts and we've talked about this before so i'm going to i'm going to step away from the pulpit for a moment we've talked about, we've talked about this a lot before what it means to like think hard and to think well to the glory of god like that's a, that's a thing right thinking and worship are intimately connected intimately connected how we think as people right what we see impacts us how we think about the things that we see impact us. It impacts how we walk. It impacts how we live. And so when we say that we should be sending our minds and our thoughts and our beings on Scripture, what we're saying is, is that's going to be causal for us. Right? It's not separated. I'm making a distinction here, but they're not separate. Right? We can't just think about something and it not affect what we do. 
right? So when we think about gospel partnership, when we think about gospel unity, and we're thinking about all of these things, and we're setting our entire person onto them, we're going to be doing them, right? There's going to be feet to our thoughts, as it were. We're not going to be left aimless. We're not going to just stay in our minds. And listen, that is hard, because a lot of times we, you know, we constantly, as people, have this constant inner monologue running and running in our minds where we listen to our own thoughts over and over and over. And if what you're feeding yourself is trash, then don't be surprised when you beget trash. But when you're feeding yourself the truth of the gospel in your entire consideration, with your entire life, with all of your action, with all of your thought, with all of your purpose, you're setting it on the truths of the gospel, the things that are lovely, the things that are beautiful, and you set them on the work of Jesus you're not going to beget trash. That doesn't mean you're not going to see it and you're not going to know what it is. You'll just know that it's trash, right? The lines get really blurred, right? The lines get really blurred between what's holy and what's worldly. And we continuously fill ourselves up with the world. So let me give you a case study, as it were. So you can set your Bibles down for a moment. I'm going to tell a story. I don't usually tell stories, but I'm going to tell a story. So you wake up. It's about 6 a.m. It's the big day, though. You look forward to it throughout the week. You're up before your kids. So you even happen to get up before your spouse. Down the stairs you go. Breakfast is on. No better way to start the day than with (laughs) breakfast. One by one, the rest of the family slowly makes their way down into the kitchen. Spouse, then your oldest, then your youngest. After breakfast, you quickly clean up because you don't want to be late. Today's the day, right? So even though it's the weekend, you gather your freshly bathed family and you're off. Merging on and off of highways, turning and exiting, finally you reach your destination. You corral the kids, someone drops a toy, and you subsequently drop your keys, and the parking lot becomes chaos because one of your kids can't get their arm in their coat, right? It's a mess. But finally, you're greeted at the door with a smile. And you take your kids to the kid area and you're off. As you begin your journey in the massive building, right, the architecture, it causes you to stop in awe of the breathtaking magnitude of its multiple levels. You see gilded doorways and thoughtful patterns on the walls. Not only that, but there are actually signs that graciously guide the traffic of people to and from their destinations. Finally, you've navigated all of the madness and you're being presented at last with the images that you would longed to hope for. This temple of sorts that you have come to offers a gospel whose power is beauty, so it speaks to you. It speaks to you because after all, that's what we desire, right, is beauty. And so you drink deeply, assuming that this is the temple that has all of the answers to my questions and all the solutions to my problems. And after meandering momentarily, you are swept through one of the adjacent cathedral doors. And the action, the movement, the auspiciousness that is inside is alluring. And so you go, once again, you are greeted and shepherded through your experience. Though often we are cautious when entering this cathedral, there is a vague sense of what is being sought after. Unsure of what your fulfillment will be in this temple, you wait, waiting for the spirit of some sort to lead you to an unanticipated experience until that moment you realize you know why you came. You know exactly why you came into this temple into the first place. You found it. You found what you need. You find the shepherd and tell him about your experience. When invited into worship at this temple, you're not only invited to give, but of course, you're invited to take. You make your sacrifice, you leave your donation, and you depart. Not empty-handed, of course. You leave with that object that you all along knew you so desperately needed. 
Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? So did you follow that? Did you follow that story? That story of that family getting up on a Saturday morning and going to the mall? This is what happens. The world offers us this catechism. Catechism is essentially a list of principles, right? And this is what the consumerist catechism says. This is what the consumer world says to us. It says, what is the chief end of man? And the consumerist catechism responds, to acquire stuff with the illusion that it will last forever. James K.A. Smith wrote about that in his book, You Are What You Love. And and think about that illustration for a moment. That guy's like laying on it today. Um, Think about that illustration for a moment. Right? When we let the world into our minds, we start to get the lines blurred between what the world is offering us and what the Bible is offering us. What is holy and what is worldly can get confused. Right? We can start to stop seeing the Bible as holy and start to see the world as good. Right? So we must stop and we must garner our mind with the gospel. Uh, I don't know if he's here. Phil. A gentleman who's a member there, he's a gentleman, a member of this church. He posted on Facebook months ago. He doesn't remember this, but it stuck with me. I thought it was wonderful. He said, essentially, he was getting ready to start his seminary experience for that semester. And he said, I have X amount of pages to read. I got to do X, Y, Z, lots of stuff to do time to gird up the loins of my mind. That's what we should be doing. Submitting our entire mind, our entire purpose with the gospel Because if what we're feeding ourselves is garbage, that's what we are going to beget. And we're going to get things like that mall story and the story of the gospel and the story of us as a people confused. And we're going to forget what it means to be partnering together in the gospel. We're going to forget what it means to be unified in the gospel and to have joy. And the things of the world are going to start to taste good and not like dirt. So it's another battlefield where we wage war. And it's not a battle primarily of selfishness or greed. It's a battle for the mind. Paul, in the same way that he said we fight all things with prayer, in the previous section is saying that, we, that our practice will never follow if our minds are not right. So we must get our minds right. We must get our beings right. We must get our purpose right. We must get our considerations right. We must take these things into account with our entire life. All right. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. So, we have another thing happening, another one of those rhetorical devices, right? Paul is using four, four U's, essentially. He's saying you have learned, you have received, and you have heard, and you have seen. So, learned, received, heard, and seen in me. And he says, practice these things. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we need to pause, right? Because this sermon is directly connected to Hedger's sermon from last week. And Hedger talked about verses 2 through 7 of this same chapter. And 7 of that chapter, remember, says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so in 7, it's the peace of God that comes. 
with prayer and supplication, thanksgiving. But in our text, it's not the peace of God. It's the God of peace. So through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But in our passage, it's you practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So in seven, we get peace. And then in nine, we get peace's God. And so what we're to do is we're to emulate Paul, right? We had that um, sermon by Ronnie two weeks ago. We're to emulate the Christian leaders who've come before us. We're to embody those things that are good in Paul, that mirror Jesus. We're to be imitators of those who have ran the race faithfully before us, who have continued not only in this life as we live and faithfully partnered in the gospel, have faithfully sought for unity in the church, but also those saints who have come and passed. We're supposed to live lives in accordance with the gospel. So chapter 3 shows the gospel truths. In chapter 4, we see the gospel practiced. And before we get into our verse 9 too much, I've got a little time, I want to talk about something that I think this passage, I just could not get out of my mind when I was working on this. And it's this. So some of you might be familiar with a theologian, a writer, a scholar named C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis coined a term. He really um, made an idea called chronological snobbery. I want to hijack it. I want to take it. And I want to kind of edit it a little bit. But he said that chronological snobbery is this. In essence, it is, you're talking about art, you're talking about science, anything like that. It is better in modern times than in the past because of its place in history. And so things in modern time are better than things in the past because of its place in history. And so Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. We shouldn't think like that. We should look to things in the past and learn from them and glean insight from them. So this 21st century painting is better than this 17th century painting because the 21st century painting is newer. That's chronological snobbery. I think often we become chronological snobs in how we let people speak to our lives. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We become chronological snobs and we think that our sin is new to us and that nobody else has struggled with it before. And so when we're called to practice these things, and we're called to emulate Paul, right? And we're supposed to garner this wisdom from past saints and wisdoms from saints in our lives. We have this weird kind of chronological snobbery where we think that, no, this is, this is just specific to me. And nobody else knows how to deal with this. And so I'm going to hide it, right? While I should be hiding God's word in my heart, I'm hiding and harboring this sin in my heart. And that's dirt. That is dirt that will infiltrate your mind and that will affect your feet. So we should purge ourselves of that mentality. You should open yourself up because there are people throughout all them. Hear me, that sin that you're struggling with, I don't mean to make light of it, but it's not new. You should lean on the people in this church. You should arm in arm with people in this church. and You should seek to um, kill that sin with the fellow members of this church, with your friends in community to seek that sin to be destroyed so that you can practice these things that the God of peace will be with you, right? That's what the text says. And so when it comes to our sin, let's not be chronological snobs. Let's not be people who harbor our sin in our heart, but let's be people who seek to reach out to those and imitate those who've come before us. Okay, that was kind of an aside. You've learned 
Right? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What you learned, right? So I'm just going to define what Paul's saying when he says what you learned. What you learned, right? The Philippians learned and accepted Christ and thereby rejected their flesh. That's what they learned. They should practice that. We should practice that. We need Christ in our life. We need Christ on our behalf so that, right? So that we can receive and attain the goal that we talked about two weeks ago. So practice that and the God of peace will be with you. Now I'm going to come back to this practice language in a moment. But practice that and the God of peace will be with you. Received. You received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, right? You received the gospel and instruction for living. That's what was received by the Philippians. How to live amidst suffering. How to live in gospel partnership. How to live in united. How to live in unity. How to live in union. How to live in unity with one another. That's what was received. Heard. You heard and you seen in me. Right? You heard. Philippians heard that Paul had faced trials. We see that all throughout the book. They were being encouraged by the fact that Paul had faced trials in his life. You saw in me. Paul provided a model of a figure for living. To practice these things, embody these things, emulate these things in me as much as I look like Jesus, emulate my life. That's what we should do. We should emulate those who've come before us. Now, let me throw on the brakes for a moment. Again, there's a car over here. So what's going on here in chapter 9, it's e- or in verse 9, it's easy for us to make it out to be salvation. It's easy for us to make it out to be, well, if you just do X, Y, Z, you live like Paul, then you'll be saved. That's not what's happening, right? Right, The salvific work that is being discussed in 9 that says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. Those people who are practicing what they learned and what they received and what they heard are Christians. People who aren't Christian do not practice these things. And so... This is the imperative that we see from the gospel being described in chapter 3. So think about it like this. I was listening to a sermon by a friend who um, preached this text. He gave this illustration. He said, imagine that you're going to your community group. We do community groups here at Emmaus. If you're not a member, we go to a family member's house or we go to um, a location that's close to where we all live. And we meet once a week in community and we talk about the sermon. So say you're going to your community group, or you're going, if you're not a member, you're not in a community group, you're going to a friend's house. And say that you get to your community group, and you feel this overwhelming burden. You get this special revelation from God, and God says, at this certain time, you're going to be aware of it. You're going to have to jump to the left. And if you don't, you'll receive certain doom. So that happens to you in your car, and you're like, whoa, that was weird. I better tell somebody about it, because... I don't want them to receive certain doom. So you go to your community group and you tell the guy and you're like, hey, um, I saw this, I got this special revelation where um, I have to jump hard into the left and you were right there with me. And if we don't jump hard into the left, we'll receive our certain doom. And so the guy's like, all right, I don't want to receive my certain doom. And so he believes the word that the gentleman speaks to him. So they live out there, they go throughout their entire community group, nothing happens, they're both kind of on edge, right? And then the evening ends. And and for this instance, the community group's in a cul-de-sac. And so they're standing in the cul-de-sac at the, you know, at the end of community group, and some bozo, we'll okay, pull a random name out of nowhere, his name would be Jake, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's pulling into the cul-de-sac going a million miles an hour, driving like he's from Alabama, and, uh, <laughs> and the dude knows that this is the moment, this is the moment that I saw in that special revelation, so he jumps hard into the left, and they're saved. That's a silly illustration, but what saved them? 
It's not their practice. Their practice didn't save them. It was their faith to know that they had to jump out of the way that saved them. We're talking about that movement, that jumping to the left, that getting out of the way of the car. That's what's happening here in verse 9. They're not being saved by their practice in verse 9. We're not, that's what we, we spent an entire sermon, we spent two entire sermons through chapter 3 to say that I, Paul does not boast in his works, right? We do not boast in our works. We boast in Christ alone. Christ and him crucified is our beck and call. That is it. But that doesn't mean we don't practice. Why? Because right thinking leads to right practice. That's what we saw in all of verse verse 8. Right thinking leads to right practice. If you understand what's happening in the gospel, Christ is genuinely the king on the throne of your heart and your conscience and your feet. It's all three or none. Then you'll move. You'll get out of the way of the car. You'll practice these things. The God of peace will then be with you. This is the God who gave the peace in verse 7. This is the God who relieves us of our burdens and allows us to not have to be anxious and allows us to be in unity together and allows us to be open with our sin with one another. It's the God who gives us joy, the God who gives us unity, gives us peace. So there's two points of application from the text. One, think holy thoughts. Think holy thoughts, church. But not only, don't let them stay in your mind. Let them be consumed in your entire being. Right? We have a war we need to wage on the forefronts of our minds. We need to make Christ all in our minds, but also in our hearts and also in our feet. Think holy thoughts. If you want to stay the course, you want to continue to strain towards the goal, think holy thoughts. Get your mind out of the gutter. Right? So in Hebrews, right? we, went, we went through Hebrews before we went through Philippians. And in Hebrews 6, we see this warning passage on how to, how to stay the course, right? And these warning passages, they act as guardrails for us to stay on the road of faithfulness. Remember that? These guardrails that were put up for us? When our minds start to bang against those guardrails, and we know that we are in danger, right? And we're starting to think bad thoughts. We need to get our minds out of the gutter, off of those guardrails, and back onto the road of faithfulness. Right? And, and, and don't, hear, don't hear me saying that. I think that we need to completely separate ourselves from the world, Right? I'm not saying that in our thoughtful, holy thinking, I'm not even saying that you need to spend 100% of your time, time thinking about spiritual things. I'm not saying that. That's impossible. Nobody could do that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to spend as much time as we can thinking about holy things so that when we engage with the world, we'll be able to know that it's the world and not think that it's holy. Right? If we're constantly eating dirt, we're not going to know when the world feeds us dirt. If we're constantly eating holiness, we're constantly eating God's Word, we're constantly thinking about Scripture, constantly thinking about those six whatevers, what's true, what's beautiful, the Gospel. We think about those things. Whenever the world tries to feed us medicine, they call it medicine, we'll realize that it's dirt. We'll know that it's trash. We'll know that it's what we do not need because what we need is Scripture. So don't think that I'm being isolationistic. I just want us to know the difference between what is holy and what is unholy. And that starts with our minds being captivated by Christ, our minds being a throne room for Jesus. Two, practice right living. Right, This right living is what we've learned, what we've received, what we've heard, and what we've seen. That's the right living that we see in this passage. Be rememberers of what you've learned. Do not be quick to forget the length Christ went to save you. Remember what you have received. We have received the call to be unified, to have joined the gospel, to proclaim the gospel together. 
partnering together for the cause of Christ. We are exhorted, right? Remember, we are exhorted to pray these things. We're exhorted to not be anxious, right? What does it say? It says, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's what you've heard, what you've seen in Paul, right? What you've seen in those leaders, what you've seen in the people who've come before you. Live like those, Ronnie said it in a way that I couldn't, but live like those, right? Lean in on those, on those lives of those people who you want to emulate, who have that spirituality that you just can't quite get to. You can't quite get to their level. Be around them. Be in their house. Be in their home. We need to be around those people, seeing those people. Live like Paul. Live like those in the faith who've come before us. And so that's what we do. We think holy thoughts that encapsulate our entire being and we practice the right living. And since it's Hymn Sunday, and I was very excited that today's Hymn Sunday, I was gone, not last week, but two weeks prior, and I was gone for two weeks from Emmaus, and I came back, and I just realized I missed you guys, missed hearing your voices, missed being drowned in the sea of your voices. And um, so it was good to be here for that. And so as we close, I wanted to take one of my favorite hymns. I just wanted to read it because it's very appropriate for how we're closing. It's the hymnist Francis Havergal. Take my life and let it be. Consecrate, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my tongue, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet it is treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. So set your minds on the things of Jesus. Consider the depths and the magnitude of the gospel, how far Christ went for you. This week, clear your mind of the trash of this world, and just as a case study, maybe think about grace. Think about how Christ gave himself up completely and entirely for you. That he satisfied the wrath of God. That God, as we sang in that hymn, turned his face away. Not that your sin was forgotten upon God. Not that your sin didn't need to be punished. But that there was a due punishment and a due wrath coming for you. But because of Christ, that wrath is no more for you. Because of Christ. Think about that grace that Christ appeased the wrath of God for you. Think about those things and surely that will cause you to live a different way then practice the gospel truths we have been learning throughout our time in Philippians. Pursue unity. Seek gospel partnership. Band yourself together with the people of Emmaus. Band yourself together with those in your community. Fight for your joy in Christ. In all things, be prayerful. Seek peace. For in the practice of these things is the God of peace, and he will be with you. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you're an ancient, timeless God. That your truths were as true at creation as they are today, as they will be and are in eternity. 
and that the forwarding of your gospel is not on our backs, but it is on yours. We thank you that you allow us to participate. And so, God, as we close in our time together, I pray that those in the room who do not know you would see the beauty of Christ and how he gave himself up for his church, and that they would see that as beautiful, and that they would see that what is true and what is honorable and what is pure is your son, And we have been called because of your son to live out things that are true and are pure and are honorable. And so wreck us for your gospel. Make us a church who is dependent upon you. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com dot com.